Hello there, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment. I'm James Paniki, Senior Editor with MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. It's great to be with you again. Now, this week, fraud and money laundering are the name of the game. Although, as we'll hear in about 10 minutes' time, proving fraud against individuals has become something of a challenge for prosecutors in London. The Serious Fraud Office has seen its case against managers of the global UK-based public service provision company Serco collapse recently, and it's an important story because the SFO's failure to secure the conviction of individuals may have an impact on the deterrence value of existing laws. MLEX's correspondents Martin Coyle and Annie Robertson have been in and out of virtual court since the end of March, and we'll discuss the case with them soon. First up, though, we're off to Barbados, where the small-time case of a bribed local official has been taken on by prosecutors in the United States and has culminated in the conviction of a former Barbados minister. What's going on, I hear you ask? Why would US federal prosecutors take an interest in a few thousand dollars of bribes that have been paid in a sovereign Caribbean state? MLEX's New York correspondent Richard Vanderford has been grappling with these very issues and he joins us now. Um, Richard, firstly, just tell us something about Donville Innes. Who is he and what did he do? Um, Donville Innes, he's a citizen of Barbados. Uh, he was an elected member of parliament there and he was in the cabinet there as minister of industry. And what he did was uh, he took bribes from the insurance corporation of Barbados Limited, ICBL, to use his influence to award ICBL two contracts, uh, relatively small contracts, to insure government assets. He took about 36000 US dollars and he was charged in the United States and uh, recently sentenced to two years in prison. Mm. But why was he prosecuted in the United States, given that these bribes that he received um, were received in Barbados, not in the US? So ICBL came forward uh, voluntarily under a US program that allows and incentivizes companies to to come forward and offers them sort of more lenient treatment if they do. So ICBL came forward, confessed, uh, cooperated with U.S. prosecutors, and and that company got a declination. So it wasn't actually criminally charged. The tie for Innes to the United States is he laundered money through a friend's dental company on Long Island, New York. So the $36,000 flowed through that company. All right. So that explains the uh, the connection with the U.S. But how does this fit into the uh, anti-corruption scheme? How does it uh, fit into the anti-corruption side of things? So normally under the actual anti-corruption, anti-foreign corruption law in the U.S., the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you can't go after the officials. They're explicitly written out of the act. That was a decision that Congress made for a variety of reasons just to, to say that we don't want this act being used to, to go after foreign officials and start policing foreign officials themselves. But there's this giant loophole, you might call it, in the money laundering statute, which allows you to, to prosecute you know, a lot of different kinds of crime if they involve money that somehow touches the United States. So this, is, this kind of prosecution is something that we've seen um, in, in other cases. In New York and in the United States, uh, there was a case of uh, a man called Mamou Tiam, a former minister of mines for Guinea, who was prosecuted for money laundering in New York. An analogous case against the United Nations official John Ash, who was a former president of the General Assembly. He wasn't charged with money laundering, but he was charged with uh, 
with tax crimes for bribe money that he took. So even though the FCPA doesn't allow the prosecution of foreign officials under the FCPA, uh, prosecutors have, have sort of used money laundering, especially in other kind of adjacent laws, to to, to go after foreign officials nonetheless. Mm. Uh, th- that's despite the fact that it's safe to assume that the U.S. itself wouldn't like its own government officials to be on the receiving end of uh, of foreign prosecutions, right? Yeah, th- there's you know there's no evidence that the U.S. particularly likes it when foreign countries prosecute its prosecute its citizens. Um, but in this space, the U.S. is the most aggressive enforcer, I think, by far. Um, and so it's it's really kind of, you know, a one-way street that we've seen so far. Um, we really just haven't had, you know, a kind of scenario where a foreign country it might be prosecuting a U.S. person for, for this kind of wrongdoing. Mm. Okay, so what were the objections put forward by Donville uh, Innes, and how did they play out at his sentencing? He had a laundry list of objections. I mean, his lawyers were saying throughout the case that uh, it really didn't make sense that, that he's here in the United States. Um, they they tried to present that argument as well to to the jury. That's something that sometimes works. Um, in other cases, you, I've seen in, in New York and in Brooklyn, uh, defense lawyers have said, you know, ask yourself why we're here in Brooklyn and, and your taxpayer dollars are going to, to prosecute someone for a crime that has almost no tie to here. And I have seen that work. It, it didn't work in this case. At his sentencing hearing itself, um, Innes also you know, made a bunch of objections himself, which was unusual. Uh, he spoke for about half an hour, which was also unusual. There's a chance for defendants to speak at, at sentencing hearings, but normally they, they keep it relatively short. They read a prepared statement and they they apologize or c- try to express some kind of contrition to to win a bit of the judge's favor. But Innes kind of gave a bunch of implicit criticisms of the prosecution. He noted that there weren't any restrictions on political fundraising in Barbados. He also noted that the underlying crime that he was... Um, charged with sort of under the money laundering was a violation of Barbados uh, anti-corruption law that had never been used in Barbados itself. It's a 1929 law and it predates Barbados independence from the United Kingdom by decades and has never been used for prosecution there according to to Innes. So that that's something he noted. Also unusually a couple of officials from Barbados or former officials came forward to to speak on his behalf. A former attorney general for Barbados came forward and said, I worked in the um, managing the prison system, and if it was us, we probably wouldn't put someone in prison for this kind of crime. And prosecutors objected, and uh, the judge cut him off. Richard, this has been a a fascinating cross-jurisdictional story, the type of stories that we uh, really enjoy. So let's talk again very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Richard Vanderford works for MLEX's anti-bribery and corruption team, and he was joining us from New York. Richard's analysis of the case has all of the twists and turns that you've just heard about, but a lot more as well, so it's certainly worth a read. You can find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of our reporting and analysis. James Benicki with you today and coming up, the Circo Circus, why a court defeat by the UK's serious fraud office is likely to reverberate.
Thank you for sticking around. This is MX's regulatory podcast. You can subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. We're glad to be in your feed again this week. Leave a review if you can. Help us spread the word. Now, the UK's Serious Fraud Office has of late been struggling to secure the conviction of individuals in high-profile prosecutions, even when the companies that they work for have admitted wrongdoing and have accepted hefty fines. Does it matter? Should the SFO care that people aren't ending up behind bars? Well, arguably, yes, and it's all about deterrence. MX reporters Martin Coyle and Annie Robertson have been following the prosecution of two managers from the publicly listed company Serco. Annie and Martin join us now from London. And Annie, uh, starting with you, maybe explain to us what the Serco case was all about and tell us something about the allegations that the two men had been facing. So the UK's serious fraud office alleged that two former executives at a company called Serco fabricated £12 million worth of costs in a bid to overcharge the Ministry of Justice for electronic tagging contracts used by prisons between 2011 and 2013. Um, The prosecutors claimed that Nicholas Woods and Simon Marshall concealed these high profit margins so the MOJ couldn't justify clawing back public money for those services. The pair denied the charges And they will argue that they were actually given comfort by the company's senior management and its big four auditor, Deloitte, that the figures submitted to the MOJ were, in fact, appropriate. Okay, so what role, if any, did the company play in all of this? So the company played no official role in the criminal trials. They weren't a party to it. But unbeknown to the jury, the company had actually entered into a deferred prosecution agreement, which is a type of plea deal with the SFO in 2019, to avoid criminal prosecution by actually admitting wrongdoing. So as part of that deal, Serco was ordered to pay um, a 19.2 million fine and overhaul its compliance functions entirely to make sure that nothing like this would ever happen again. Mm. And Annie, just in a few words, remind our listeners what a DPA is and how it works. So a deferred prosecution agreement is a type of corporate plea deal where a company who is accused of wrongdoing by the UK Serious Fraud Office will admit wrongdoing, agree to pay a fine and overhaul its compliance to avoid criminal prosecution. And what that does is that provides stability to the company's shareholders. It avoids a very messy public trial and it also protects costs because a company having to pay to defend itself in a criminal trial is not going to be a very cheap endeavour. Okay, so Annie, just to to recap here, for those unfamiliar with the UK or in this case, I suppose, the the English justice system, uh, there were these two things that were going on. One was the charges against the two individuals, but on the other hand, the uh, company itself had accepted a DPA, but that was not revealed to the jury because clearly they didn't want to contaminate the minds of the jury with this admission of guilt on the part of the company. Is Is that a correct summary? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Normally what happens is a company will enter into a deferred prosecution agreement first and as part of that plea deal they'll hand over company documents, they will cooperate with prosecutors and normally that's what enables the SFO to kickstart a prosecution against individuals having been uh, named and shamed, for lack of a better phrase, um, by the company that's involved in the misconduct. Okay, so we've set the scene now. Martin, what happened then? Yeah, thanks, James. So um, about four weeks into the expected uh, 12-week trial, so about a third of the way through, uh, the case effectively, well, 
it, it collapsed uh, after the SFO said it could no longer uh, offer any evidence. So the judge uh, ordered the jury to return not guilty verdicts uh, and the men walked free. Now, it's obviously not a great outcome for the SFO, but um, what happened was it emerged mid, mid-trial that the SFO had made mistakes in disclosing evidence um, to, to the defence lawyers uh, and that it hadn't han- handed over various documents um, to the men as it, as it should have done. Now, there are often sort of skirmishes like this or issues with disclosure. Uh, the, these tend to happen sort of pre-trial and that you know they have sort of arguments about this and it generally gets sorted out but in this case it, it hadn't happened and the SFO had obviously made made an error uh, about this. Um, now it was so serious this area or such a big error that the um, the, the trial was stopped. They tried to fix it with the jury the, the jury were sent away for a week they, they tried to fix it but it couldn't be fixed so the SFO wanted the truck to effectively start the trial again with a new jury um, but the judge had had enough and um, the, the trial was stopped, the men walked free and the SFO was left with egg on its face. And Martin, in, in just a few words, just tell us something about what the objection was in relation to the documents. Why did this uh, whole case unravel? Well, um, the two men had argued in their defence that it was company policy to, to reattribute profits internally uh, and, and that this practice was signed off by senior management and, and the auditor. What happened was that there, there appeared to be evidence that the, the um, SFO hadn't disclosed, there's no suggestion that it was deliberate, um, to the defence that this was actually sort of company policy. So it, it, it effectively, well, it helped the, the defence's case and they didn't have this and it wasn't put before the jury. So, you know, the judge said, you know, the, the, this is, the trial's unsafe to go on. So that's, he, uh, she effectively put an end to it. All right, so let's talk about uh, why, I mean, this is clearly damaging for the serious fraud office, but uh, to what extent is it damaging and what does it mean for SFO cases in the future? And I suppose more broadly, what does it say about the, the future of the DPA regime? Well, there's no, there's no doubt in James, it's a big embarrassment for the SFO uh, and it adds to a, a growing list of cases that have reached court where the, um, the SFO has failed to secure convictions against individuals. So uh, the, the case involving Tesco and, and former Barclays executives are the most notable and high-profile examples of this. As Annie mentioned before, the, there, was a, there was a DPA attached to this um, case. Um, so the SFO is now, including Serco, has now signed nine of these agreements with various companies dating back to 2015. Uh, now, on top of that, They've charged 11 people connected with these companies uh, with criminal offences, but they have uh, failed to uh, bring a single successful prosecution. Um, Now, it's obviously harder to bring cases against individuals. Companies tend to settle, um, you know, pay the fine, move on, uh, walk away. Whereas individuals, obviously, their liberty is at stake, so they tend to fight tooth and nail against these these charges. Um, uh, so it's a lot harder, to, you know, it's a lot harder to bring these cases against individuals. But uh, I think, you know, if if we've come to a situation now with with so many cases where the ESFA hasn't been able to, to to bring the case over the line or hasn't been able to charge people or the cases have collapsed, that you know, it, it might come to a point now where the companies start looking at the SFO and think, well, actually, if 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 the SFO can't get these cases over the line, why why would we sign up to a DPA? Maybe we'll take our maybe we'll take our chances in court. 
And of course, jail terms in this context are significant because uh, because of the deterrence factor, because they can't be written off in a footnote in an annual report. They can't be considered simply the cost of doing business. I mean, when your managers are in the slammer, there's something that, you know, there's something about that that's likely to reverberate, right? Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, um, that, that companies pay fines, they move on, they walk away. But, um, you know, the real... The real deterrent effect is if you, you start putting, you know, people in uh, prison, quite, quite senior people in prison, and as they do in the US, um, it's just harder to, to do that. And it's often harder for big companies to, you know, if you have a big company, it's very hard to pinpoint where, where the blame might be But uh, in the, with, with DPAs. But with, with smaller companies, it's a bit easier to, uh, to, to pinpoint where wrongdoing has occurred. There's less lines of management. It's easier to to look at individuals and say, you did this and you did that. So, you know, there's always been an issue with this that um, it, it, it incentivizes big companies and it, and it punishes, um, not incentivizes, but it punishes small, smaller companies rather than the, the big companies. Okay, Martin and Annie, thank you for spending so much time for MLEX in court over the past few weeks and months. Let's catch up again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle is a senior correspondent with MLEX. He's based in London. Annie Robertson is a correspondent also based in London. They both cover anti-bribery and corruption. Their analysis of SFO's Circo defeat is ready for your eyeballs to consume. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. Just make a beeline for the News Hub tab for the Circo story, and the very best of our reporting and analysis. Now, it gives me no joy to have to tell you that today's edition of the MLEX podcast is coming to an end. The good news is that we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. My name is James Panicki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for being with us. I'll see you again next week. Bye for now. <music>